difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson. And Keith Phipps. After talking Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in the first half, now we're bringing in 10 Cloverfield Lane, the new semi-quasi-addition to the Cloverfield franchise, both produced by J.J. Abrams. As with Psycho and 2008's Cloverfield, many steps were taken from a promotional angle to preserve the air of mystery around 10 Cloverfield Lane. The movie seemed to pop up out of nowhere, close to its release date, and the footage in commercials and trailers, and in the movie itself, frankly, suggested no connection to Cloverfield whatsoever. Now we've learned there's a reason for that. 10 Cloverfield Lane didn't begin life as a Cloverfield movie, but was retrofitted into the franchise, which is beginning to look more like a TV anthology series. Comparisons to Psycho are most obvious in the beginning, which self-consciously mirrors the premises of a young woman, Michelle, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, skipping town in a hurry, getting run off the road, and winding up under the watch of a mentally unstable host. His name is Howard, and he's played by John Goodman. There's a third party, too, Emmett, played by John Gallagher Jr., and they're living together in Howard's underground bunker, which is keeping them safe from the horrible toxins above the surface. The question for Michelle and Emmett becomes this. Are they better off with Howard, or should they escape to whatever forces might await them on the outside? What are you going to do to me? I'm going to keep you alive. You were in an accident, and I saved your life by bringing you here. And everyone outside of here is dead. What happened to your arm? Are you trying to escape? I was trying to get in. What was that? Quiet. How do you know that this is real? Something's coming. So let's just get a baseline on this movie. What did everyone think? And what are the uh, psycho connections and diversions for you? I think one thing we we really need to start with is we're coming a little too late for the psycho uh, spoiler warning. If you listen to the first episode, I hope you've already seen Psycho. Mm -hmm. If you're listening to this episode, I hope you've already seen 10 Cloverfield Lane. Because even if we didn't discuss the ending, which we're going to have to discuss the ending, there's no way to talk about this movie without giving away things that that people really shouldn't know before they go see this movie. Mm -hmm. Please do not use this podcast to decide whether you're going to go see this movie. Go see this movie and then come back to this podcast. That's one thing that I I see as a big connection between the two of them. I don't think 10 Cloverfield Lane is as twisty or as impactful in its twists as Psycho, but I think they're both movies that just play so much better without a very clear idea of what you're getting going into. I will say, though, as far as the twist, I guess, of the first third, I felt perfectly comfortable talking about what happened in my review. My review didn't lead up to the point where she gets run off the road and then who knows what's ha- what happens. I mean, I say what happens. And I think it's clear from the promotional materials that they are in this place and John Goodman is in the movie and all that. Other- well, I think Tasha's talking about the ending, right? I mean, I'm talking about the ending, but I'm also talking about... 
a lot of the enjoyment of 10 Cloverfield Lane for me was, I mean, I'd seen the trailer. I knew that there was a door. I knew that at some point she got to the door. Um, I knew that she fights fights back against Goodman. I know, knew that there were also portions where she's not fighting back against Goodman. The way the film played out for me, one of the, the best things about it was not knowing what was coming next. Mm-hmm. And part of not knowing what was coming next was just that from moment to moment, what are their relation? What are the relationships between those three people going to be like? And even talking about the way they come to a sort of agree- an agreement and the way they settle down together, to me, is spoiling a part of the film that I'm glad I didn't know about going. Yeah, okay, one thing that relieved me uh, watching the ads, I kind of thought, okay, she's there, she is kept there under under suspicious circumstances. At some point, she fights back. That's probably the climax of the film. I was I was happy watching the film that this is a very early thing that happens. At that point, I really did not know where it was going to go. I did not know where these relationships were going to go. I really liked that for a while. Uh, they kind of settle into the, this sort of familial routine. We're getting into spoilers now, but so if you haven't bailed already, bail now. But they kind of like try to create a sort of a new normal, this sort of family situation down there. And that was a point where I was like, okay, I don't know what's going. I'm excited. Yeah, I loved this movie pretty much full stop. I don't have a lot of complaints about it. And as far as spoilers go, I believe it was Sam Adams who wrote a piece for, I think, Critic Wire about uh, how the title is the biggest spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really and, and I I totally buy into that argument because I think what could have been so fascinating about this movie is the ambiguity of what is happening up there Mm -hmm. and what is truth and what is fiction but by positioning it in this cloverfield universe you are positioning it within this universe where aliens exist sort of aliens have been proven to exist i don't know though because i I don't know in cloverfield if it was aliens i I think it was unclear Well, because it it opens with you know where the end of cloverfield where you see the the ufo or whatever kind of falling into satellite satellite satellite. yeah satellite stuff and and so by evoking that image uh, at least i interpreted that as okay it's definitely aliens yeah and Uh, and, see i don't i i disagreed with that sam adams piece i mean normally i'm on board for whatever he's laying down but i actually (laughs) i actually took the step of tweeting him i disagree which i almost never do with critics and for me the, the cloverfield thing was actually an enjoyable distraction because there are points when they're down there and they're hearing noises from up above and i'm like oh it's the cloverfield monster Mm -hmm. i think it's really interesting reading reactions to the film online there were definitely people who walked in having ignored everything that had been said about the movie and thought they were seeing cloverfield too they they thought the cloverfield monster Mm -hmm. clovey clover whatever it's called (laughs) people don't do call it clover was going to be just like stomping around like eating people and, and they didn't get that and they were super disappointed and angry just as there were people who walked into the first Cloverfield expecting a Voltron movie and didn't get it and were super disappointed and angry. I mean, I was not disappointed in the ending of this movie at all. And I, I wouldn't call the title a spoiler. It was more just contextualizing that without it could have made the experience different than it was for me. I still think it was an incredibly suspenseful movie. That last 40 minutes or so, once basically from the vat of acid onward, I was just curled in a ball that like like i was i was physically in pain by the end of this movie because i was so tense um, i love this movie because it hurt me so much yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like there was a point where i was like I, I want this to be over i want this to be over not because i wasn't enjoying what was happening but because i was f- physically in pain from watching it this is almost an aside but I think one of the things that this movie does really well is from the beginning, well, not the very beginning, but from fairly early on, it puts Michelle in 
what again very much like psycho feels like a a pulp fiction thing and you've got a woman chained to a pipe in a grubby basement with a man looming over her that feels very sexual and very disturbing and very pulp dime novel and the movie turns it into something else and one of the ways it turns it into something else is by from that moment on making her just so capable and so innovative and creative in dealing with her situation. By the time the vat of acid came out, I wasn't worried for her anymore. Mm. I was afraid of the like nihilistic drag me to hell ending that just flips the viewer the bird and is like, we don't care what you think. They're all screwed. Ha ha. But for the most part, I was fairly confident that character was going to be all right. So you were afraid it would pull a psycho. (laughs) (laughs) See, and, and that, you know, going back to the psycho comparisons, there's a lot of similarity in the psychosexual nature of the Main male characters, but the female protagonists could not be more different in that Michelle fights back. Her whole story is her fighting back, and Marion never really has an opportunity to fight back. And from what we see of her character, I don't think we get the sense that she would if she was given that opportunity. But didn't Michelle's position, like as a, a confident, capable protagonist, did that ease the the strain of the tension no, for you at all? not at all. And I think that is good suspense filmmaking. And the fact that I believed like 95% that her character would come out of this okay didn't make it any less suspenseful seeing all the ways that her all the trials her character would have to go through and how she would approach them. Keith, you you seem to be a little less. Uh, oh no, not, not at all. No, no, I I, I thought it's terrific actually. Okay. Yeah, it was very well made. It it is. Um, I like Cloverfield a lot. I think it's a nice companion piece. I think there's a lot you know stylistically that could not be more different. There's not sort of an accidental camera gesture in this, and it was a very. Well, you do get some shaky cam once she gets out of the bunker. You do get some shaky yeah. cam, yeah, but it's not it's, it's not narrated by T.J. Miller. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at any point that I that I saw, no, no, I was I was I was very enthusiastic. And, what about you, Scott? Yeah, I really liked the the style of it. It being different from Cloverfield was a relief. Uh, not that I'd mind the collection of people holding video cameras, but but this is stylized in a very classic way, which I appreciate. And I also really, I, I, of course, I really liked the movie. I should probably mention that. But one of the things I liked about it too was that rock and a hard place quality mm-hmm. of of the, these characters of Michelle and Emmett trying to figure out it, whether it's going to be better for them to be in this place with this very uh, unstable and predictable character or go above ground where they know where they come to realize early that there is indeed something not good happening on the surface it's not like they're having to believe him like they see or she sees that something is really wrong up there and if they do escape what are they escaping yeah and and to go back to what we were talking about tasha with the suspense aspect of it and the feeling confident that she is capable of handling whatever situation is dealt to her the out of the frying pan into the fire aspect of that situation is i think where a lot of the suspense comes from because it's like okay She's going to escape this guy, but then what, you know? And we do kind of get a little bit of the answer to the then what, but even once she gets past that, once she fights off these crazy space worms, um, which I love that it it was space worms, (laughs) then yeah, she's going to Houston to fight some more. And it's like, there's no real happy ending here in this world there, there's this much where, where i mean it's a, it lays it on a little thick but i'll, I'll forgive it where, where she turns from a woman who runs uh mm-hmm. to a woman who fights you yeah. know it's a woman you know her first action is to run away from a difficult situation with her boyfriend we don't we don't know what and you know at the end she has a two two paths diverged uh, <laughs> in, in the wood or whatever and she chooses to go to the one that involves fighting and not just yeah. uh, running to safety i'm curious to ask the group because i don't i don't know 
necessarily even have an opinion on it, but if we're comparing Psycho and 10 Cloverfield Lane, talking about the psychosexual aspects of, of both, how are you contrasting Howard and Norman Bates? Do they read as similar to you? Is it, what, what distinctions can we draw between them? Well, we we don't have a psychologist at the end of 10 Cloverfield Lane <laughs> explaining to us. It would us be nice. Exa- yeah, it, it would be nice because it's nowhere near obvious what is going on in Howard's lizard brain. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, there is a reading to be made that it, there is no sexual component to it at all. Um, and it is all to do with his daughter that was taken from him and replaced, blah, 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 blah. But the creepiest Howard moment to me is when he emerges with his beard shaved mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all cleaned up. And I think that is where I read the sexual component into it. Oh, and of course, the awful, awful taboo game, the taboo game from hell, uh, <laughs> where he can't say the word woman. Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Like, whatever's happened is what he's, he's preparing to survive. And in some ways, I don't even think he cares if it's aliens or some sort of nuclear disaster or whatever. It's just, you know, this is his moment is, is arrived and, and here he is. And like, how he treats those people down there. It is it is tough because if it were just a purely sexual thing, he would get out rid of Emmett just to get rid of Emmett, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there's that past kidnapping that that he seems to, uh, you know, I don't think there's a lot of ambiguity that's responsible for, and it's not clear what he did with her. It's, it's, uh, he's creepy. He's, he's real creepy. Even if, even if he doesn't have design, sexual designs on her at the end of that movie, it's, he's still a huge creep. That is an actual, an interesting parallel between the two is at the very end of Psycho, you find out, oh yeah, Norman's done this several times before. Mm-hmm. This uh, Marion is not his first rodeo. And in 10 Cloverfield Lane, in the same sort of way, even after Michelle and Emmett have kind of come to terms with Howard's presence and they're all living peacefully, the next big reveal is that he had a another girl down there possibly for as long as a couple years and eventually he killed her and probably dumped her in that acid barrel and in both cases it's kind of a realization of however much you can tolerate a certain amount of psycho behavior in order to survive there comes a point where you when you realize this is a pattern i mean when you when you realize how easily norman falls into cleaning up the corpse that's kind of your <laughs> your first tip off that there's something going on here that's even worse than just a crazy old lady stabbing people. This has happened before, and if not stopped, this will happen again. And it's kind of the same way with Howard. I'm fascinated by people's response to the sexual tension in the movie. I wrote a huge piece for The Verge about why the ending works and kind of where people's expectations are. And I did all of this reading beforehand, like what people were saying online. And there is a world of difference out there between people who see absolutely no sex in the movie and a ton of sex in the movie. Mm -hmm. I commented about it on my Twitter and Dan Trachtenberg stepped in. And, uh, it's point... like Marshall McLuhan in uh, Eddie Hall. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious because I, I was in the middle of a situation where I had like six people all talking to me at once. And I'm like, no, here's my take on it. And somebody was like, the director himself just told you. <laughs> I had to go back and look at all the hashtags. It was ridiculous. But yeah, Dan Trachtenberg himself seems to believe that the sex was completely taken off the table in this movie. And I just, I think as a woman, I see this differently from the way he does. And I'm seeing a lot of that in people's reactions. Yes, Howard is obsessed with Michelle as a replacement for his daughter. Yes, he says he can't see her as a woman. She's a little girl. She's a princess. But at the same time, there's no reason 
to believe that he wasn't having sex with his daughter. He's a weird creep. Yeah. And there's something unnatural going on in there. Well, and whatever the director tells you, that that's the fallacy of intent. He, can, he cannot. <laughs> it, it, what, his, his opinion on his own movie is, is just one of uh, many opinions that uh, people could have on it. Well, um, she, and, and, she wakes up undressed and in chains. And there's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's no way that there's not sexual implications to that. Mm-hmm. And even if Howard isn't acting out of sexual motivations, she's certainly interpreting those actions through a lens of someone who fears for herself in that regard. You know, like as a, as a woman, the sexual aspect is always there for her. And it is certainly possible to feel a sexual threat even from somebody who doesn't have a sexual intention. And I think the movie is really smart about it. I think that the ambiguity around this issue is one of the really interesting things that the mm-hmm. film has going for it. And I, I love it. I love that there can be this debate about what his exactly his intentions are until it gets to the point, as it does so often in online discussions, where people are angrily shutting each other down because you didn't interpret this the way I did, <laughs> which everybody on all sides of the issue, of course course are. I think it's a really, really interesting thing. But I do think it's one of those things that's very clearly you can see what people are bringing to the table by what they see on the table when they get there. <laughs> it's nothing that a vat of acid can't solve. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think is interesting, too, is like I was thinking that as well, the sexual aspect of it. But I was thinking, like, how do you would you really even want the film <laughs> to to go down that road more than it does? No. You know, right? No. Exactly. Like no. if you really want it, you know, it, you could accuse it of introducing this element and then kind of like tiptoeing around it or back away from it you know you could say that is a certain there's a certain weakness on the film's part but i think there's also a degree of like good judgment in not making this sort of a you know a rape threat basically exactly well so much of what this movie has going for it is the fear of the unknown and the that is another unknown is what are howard's intentions and there are a million different interpretations you can make of his intentions and that is what is so frightening and so suspenseful. You know, this all gets into a little topic that mm-hmm. I had prepared. Oh, right, for this uh, Tasha. What, what what is your? I completely forgot that's a, that's what we do in this segment. Tasha, what is your topic? There's a little book by a man named Gavin Becker uh, called "The Gift of Fear." It's a, specifically about anticipating the signals of violence and where violence comes from, and understanding that violence, especially from stalkers, especially from you know people with a, a malign or sexual intent against you has clear warning signs and that the feeling that people now describe as skeevy or sketchy or rapey does come from specific social cues, specific activities that people do. And one of the things that ties both of these movies together is that both Norman and Howard have these signals. Both of them come across as creepers, we would say in the modern <laughs> lingo of the day. Both of them come across as off in a way. And one of the things I think both of these films do really well is convey to you that something's not quite right, that there's something uncomfortable about the two of them. I think one of the things that really interests me about the the lengthy conversation between Janet Lee, I'm going to pronounce it right this time, and Anthony Perkins in the parlor is that she's treating it as though it's all a normal conversation. He says some very hinky difficult to read things and his signals sometimes get very aggressive and very contemptuous and for the most part she reacts with very bland flat you know sure that's that's nice she's sitting there like eating her her bread sandwich and butter and milk <laughs> eating her sandwich and milk and he's saying weird things about how yeah you you eat like a bird birds eat a lot of food he's just weird 
And in the same way, Howard may or may not be sexual, but he's creepy. And part of that creepy comes in both cases from the fact that they shift back and forth so rapidly and so unexpectedly from hostile and aggressive and judgmental to relaxed and calm and kind and charismatic. One of the things that's interesting about 10 Cloverfield Lane is that it has so many instances where that creepiness is theoretically undercut, but it it's not because of the inherent creepiness of Howard. Like, you know, she's convinced that Howard's making this all up, but Emmett's character is there like, no, you know, I something's wrong, you know, and then she still doesn't quite believe it. Then she sees the pigs. But like, you keep getting all these signals that Howard is on the level, but you never quite believe that he's on the level. And that a, a large part of that is due to John Goodman's performance, which I don't think we've said yet, but I think we all agree is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also because of this thing that you're talking about where you know when you wake when the baseline is you waking up chained to a wall you're never going to be able to completely erase that fear and that doubt i think also and the film doesn't really play with it that much but it's kind of in the background there's a chance that Emmett could be in on it. Emmett could mm-hmm. be a conspirator that, mm-hmm. that they're working together to, to to kind of gaslight her into thinking the world has ended. I think ultimately they don't really go anywhere with that. And, and ultimately that character is too sweet and that performance uh, too too endearing to really uh, – for, for that twist of work if they had gone that direction. But, but at least for a little bit, I think that's still in play. Have you guys read any of the stuff that's been written about the original version of the script pre-retooling uh, for Cloverfield? Just a little. It seems like it's, it was rewritten by Damien Chazelle, and, and, and it, the main thing was, was the ending, which was... Which, no. The People keep interpreting it that way because the ending is such a gear shift, which we'll get into, that people want that to be tacked on. Mm-hmm. But no, it was radically different. Tell, tell me more. Well, one of the radical differences was that the the Emmett character was way, way more aggressive and Mm. villainous, and the Howard character was much more sympathetic. The Howard character doesn't die at the end. She uh, has to escape, and she kneecaps him and abandons him, but he is actually much more fatherly and much more concerned for her. Uh, At the same time, Emmett is more of her age. He's more aggressively protective. She is a much weaker and more passive character. And she and Emmett end up getting together and getting it on. It was written about at the film stage, I believe. Um, and the writer there described it as transactional sex, where, mm. where it's it's a, the wild, passionate sex you have at the end of the world. But it's also just fairly clearly like, I'm doing this for you, so you'll take care of me in a very post-apocalyptic kind of way. It sounds like the characters were very different. And one of the biggest changes really seems to be the Emma character. Interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of appreciate that that there really didn't seem to be that spark between them at Mm-mm. all. That it was it was more of a of, of a brother and sister kind of relationship. Yeah, Scott, you kind of edged around the idea that the movie could be seen as being weak or soft by not committing to the either the sexual angle or the sexual aggression. To me, this film walks a, a beautiful line between acknowledging it's there, not pretending that it isn't, and covering it up. No, I appreciate the restraint for sure. I think I'm saying you could interpret it as as not following through on something that you've implied or set up. But I, I don't want to give that impression because I think the, I think the right choices were made in both instances, in both in both Michelle's relationship to Howard and Michelle's relationship to Emmett. So we have some other topics. Genevieve, you wanted to talk about the sound design? Yeah, I want to talk about how both these movies sound. The primary goal of both of these films we're talking about is suspense, and sound is a huge component of building and maintaining suspense. Psycho's legacy as a suspense masterwork is inextricable from its iconic Bernard Herrmann score. 
The screeching strings often function more like stinging percussive elements, particularly in the shower scene and during Norma's subsequent attacks. Hitchcock was reportedly extremely particular about Psycho's sound design in his screenplay and reportedly wanted little to no score at all, instead using silence and foley to create a sense of dread. But for all his efforts, Herman's score is the oral component people most remember about Psycho. On the 10 Cloverfield Lane side, TV stalwart Bear McCreary's score is not as immediately memorable, but the film's soundtrack and sound effects have a major effect on its overall tone. The presence of a jukebox in Howard's bunker means that Trachtenberg could call it popular music cues to goose the narrative in spots, most memorably in two sequences set to Tommy James and the Shondells, I Think We're Alone Now, and the Exciters Tell Him. But even more interesting is the use of sound effects to make the bunker feel almost like a living, breathing entity in and of itself. The groaning and clunking that Michelle hears when she's in her cell or bedroom, it's a cell, is very (laughs) reminiscent of the sounds made by the monster in the original Cloverfield. And the slightly wheezing vents create the sense that someone or something is always watching her, breathing softly. Because Howard created this bunker, it's easy to associate these noises with him, evoking this feeling that he is this creeping, lurking monster that we can't quite see, but we can sense. So on that note, did these or any other elements of the sound design of these two films stand out to you guys? What do you find most aurally memorable about aurally. these? I, I love what you talked about, like sort of like the unseen noise. It reminded me of, of Das Boot. Yeah, that's right. I was about to say that. Yeah, 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 so this is a submarine movie. A yeah, submarine classic uh, uh, from the early 80s um, where, where it's like every sound has a meaning and, and every sound sounds like the world these people are living in could collapse at any <laughs> second. You know, it, it's it's quite quite masterfully done. And when like when the ventilation kicks out and all the sounds associated with that, it's it's just yeah, it's nicely done. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it, it's totally a summary movie. I'm I'm upset that you t- <laughs> that you took that <laughs> revelation from me from which uh, when uh, Jeremy was talking about it. But but that's what submarine movies are. They this way sound travels under underground the reverberations um um really uh, heighten the sense of claustrophobia and and just that feeling right as you said like i mean they're they're buried basically if 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 anything goes wrong the and, ventilation breaks down and i'm not crazy like those sounds did evoke the cloverfield monster from oh, the absolutely. first movie that i couldn't find anything to confirm that that was on purpose but i i felt that strongly both times i saw them. it seems right it seems yeah. like i also like you you said that bear mccreary's score isn't as memorable as bernard herman's and i mean like, <laughs> not not quite fair to yeah to it's that's like saying you know what whatever movie uh, the 10 cloverfield lane isn't quite as memorable as casablanca yeah, yeah well we all but we all love 10 cloverfield lane you just you can't put yeah. it on that high a pedestal I, I just mean the score isn't the primary sound function you think i i thought of anyway. I see i i follow bear mccreary's work because i'm i'm very much a an admirer of the the moods he evokes and stuff like Battlestar Galactica and and Caprica and uh, The Walking Dead. I, I, I watch the opening credits of The Walking Dead every every time because the score is so perfect. Score. Well, the score and then the combination of score and image are, are really nicely paired. Yeah, I I mean especially in the the post bunker segments, the score I think is really evocative and incredibly important in ramping up the tension as that situation gets worse and worse and worse. Although if we're talking sound design, one of the things you you really can't miss is once she emerges from the bunker, like 
encased in that suit that she's Mm. made for herself, the importance of what she can hear within it and what she can hear when she takes it off. That moment when she takes off the the head of the suit and hears the insects and hears just the ambient sound of the world as compared with the silence of the bunker when you're not listening to monster noises or the jukebox. It's just it's an incredible moment of freedom. It's an incredible moment where just for a second, you can actually feel the scope of the world she's back in, even if she's standing in a cornfield and can barely see anything around her. Yeah, I, you know, I will say though, when I was thinking about this comparison or thinking about Psycho, that McCurry's score kind of brought it to mind. I think there is kind of a wink there to mm. to, her, to Herman, especially you know the, those overhead shots of her driving, and it just I felt like oh, there's a, there's that connection. I, you know, I sort of intuited, I guess, that connection between those two movies at that point. It, I think the movie is conscious of the connection to Psycho, and I think that score is conscious of the connection to Psycho as well. Another place where I saw that connection is the use of violent sound. I don't know if that is the best way to call it, but I think there is a certain uh, violent aspect to the strings of Herman's score. The, you know, like mm-hmm. you feel like you are being stabbed with those strings. And the sequence that I remember feeling that in 10 Cloverfield Lane is the title card where her car is hit and driven off the road and it's this horrible, violent, metal-crunching noise interspersed with silence where the title cards come up. And I saw this film twice in the theater and both times there was nervous giggling during those moments of silence, just that release, that little cathartic, because like, <laughs> the, the impact of that car crash noise interspersed with complete silence is really unsettling. Yeah, especially when you come back to it because you've got the crash and then the the cut to title and for a second you're you're out of it you're out of the action you're out of the trauma you're out of the music and then suddenly you're back into it and then back out of it again and it just it creates this it's such an instinctual like tension and release tension and release because it's happening so fast that you don't have time to think about it but uh, you know that that part of your sternum that can feel the bass mm-hmm. in like a really good theater feels the impact of you're rolling down a hill in a disintegrating car and now you're not and now you are and now you're not for sure before we move on yes. uh, just one more thing i did you know that hitchcock planned to make the shower scene completely silent mm-hmm. until he heard <laughs> that score and he cut it to the score and then it was like oh yeah that, that would have been the wrong choice and, and another one of those stories that may or may not be true that he he doubled herman's rate after hearing it because of that <laughs> i'm now trying to imagine it without any sound and i think it would still work but we're, we're talking but, i mean he's not completely abandoning sound you're just talking about you just hearing like like knife yeah no very flesh. focused on the foley like the what i've read about what hitchcock wanted with psycho is what he eventually came to with the birds where there is no traditional score mm-hmm. and, and it's all kind of sound effects and fully based i think it could have worked actually i mean i think it could have worked mm-hmm. i think it would be very different mm-hmm. and i think what we get is just so memorable it is memorable but can you imagine it again see because the scene is so long i mean you don't realize how long that scene is if it were all just silent and again you're sitting in a movie theater in 1960 and just hearing the stabbing sounds for however mm-hmm. long that sequence goes a and melon. nothing else they used a melon a melon right oh god terrifying but keith you know the the whole you're gonna like this transition. I've already screwed it up by talking about how much you like it, but, <laughs> but, but, but the whole shower, the shower scene, you know, that was something that Hitchcock wanted people to be surprised by, and uh, took great lengths to to make that happen. Uh, in the in the marketing for this film, Ten Cloverfield Lane, uh, also very clever. Uh, you won't, I believe that's your topic, yes? Yeah, I mean, just generally, I want to talk about how both these films were marketed, and and I think 
they were marketed in very smart ways to fit in with the times as well, as well. Like with Psycho, you know, I, I never stand stand beside not giving critics all the all the uh, all all the privileges to which we're we're due. Uh, but it wasn't screened for critics in order to protect the secret, and it was in some ways the no one's allowed inside the theater after it starts. It's kind of a bit of a gimmick. I think it works very well as a marketing tool. It's like, well, I got to get in there and see what what this is all about, you know. But it also makes sense, you know. This is definitely a movie you want to see from from the beginning. I think there's a lot more. I think coming and going in the middle of movies was a lot more common then than now. But you know, Tim Cloverfield Lane. I I wasn't even thinking about this movie three months ago. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't even know it existed, and it just kind of sprung on us. And yeah. And and I think you know, I keep coming back to Batman versus Superman. <laughs> but I feel like it's almost like you just saw it. And, and I know. It, I know I participate in this, just we all do by being by writers on the internet, but there's such a endless hype cycle building up these movies. It's like I feel like Batman versus Superman's been coming out for like the last ten years, it seems like. <laughs> and it's like here's here's our first glimpse at the bat suit. Was that like, You're exhausted oh. before the movie even hits Yeah, was that like yeah, the, the second my... Bush administration when yeah. we first saw Ben Affleck in the, in the... One of my favorite things that ever went up on the Dissolve was Matt Singer's essay about anticipation culture yeah. and what yeah. it's doing to movies. And yeah. I have not felt the weariness of anticipation culture so strongly with a movie as I have with Batman and Superman in a really long time. Yeah. I was so tired of that movie a month ago. And I was so relieved that it was coming out because it means we're getting to the end of hearing about it. <laughs> yeah. And with Tim Cloverfield Lane, it's the ex- exact opposite. Like, I've only known about it long enough to be intrigued by it. And we've known so little about it that what we got was still a, a surprise. And what you do know is confounding. Right. It, yeah. It, yeah. It, it makes no sense. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and I think it is proven, if you are uh, willing to take a chance, it's proven to be incredibly effective in getting people to see mm-hmm. a movie in a way that, in a way that learning every possible thing about it for months in advance just is not. But also, there is canny marketing, too, in assigning it the Cloverfield name and kind of folding into the, that Cloverfield brand where... Tim Cloverfield Lane is going to get people more intrigued than The Cellar. The Cellar might have been a very, very good movie. And even with the the original ending that they had, which is more her crawling out of the bunker and finding out that the world has been destroyed, you're not going to forget by, that. By who knows what. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to forget that anytime soon. But I think folding it into this established because it doesn't have that much. I'm not even sure it has anything to do with the first Cloverfield, to be honest. I'm not sure the monsters are the same. I'm not sure that it, that it's, you know, we can be here all night. I, that. I, don't, I don't think but, we have to be here all night. I think, no, I don't think they're related but at all. They are. They Well, they are. <laughs> all right, they, we're going to be here all they night. Are, this will be fun. <laughs> they are. They aren't. But but you've established that this is J.J. Abrams thing for, for clever, unusual. J.J. Abrams as producer, not not the creator, because there's other people behind the script and direction. But, you know, for sort of clever, outside-the-box, supernatural, horror, sci-fi things. And that's kind of all you need to, need to know. And I think folding into that is, is really smart. It creates a, an extra layer of intrigue. We are still talking about whether or not there's any kind of connection, even when it's, at this point, proven that we can't prove it one way or the, another, or the other, you know. It's it's fun. It's it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting. And, and, like, I hope that other people can follow, if not this model, at least kind of get outside of the, here's, here's a huge franchise here, you know, we know what you want to know about it. We're going to eke out these little details a little bit at a time to the point where you feel like you've already seen the movie 
That's where it comes out. I mean, I, I love the Marvel movies, but I, I feel like I've already seen Civil War at this point, uh, whereas this was a an unknown quantity and, and something new and interesting. And uh, it came and I was looking forward to it. I saw it and now we're reacting to it. And that is that's that's the that, order things should. Yes, be that's in. how it should be. <laughs> Yeah, it, basically, it's the equivalent of just putting a movie into a to a paper bag, and, <laughs> and, and, and and handing it to somebody who who you think might might like it or something. It's it, it preserves that element of complete surprise, which is great. But it's also the Beyonce album drop. It's just poof. Mm-hmm. Here's oh, a sure. here's a movie. Yeah, like enjoy it and not having to talk about it for two months and and getting tired of it before it happens is just it's so refreshing at this point we called out sam adams earlier um and i'm going to call him out again he <laughs> he tweeted like the day after we all saw cloverfield you can have this experience with any movie just by refusing to participate in the <laughs> anticipation culture go into movies cold it's a terif- terrific experience i mean for me the fact that it was named 10 cloverfield lane i wasn't necessarily expecting a cloverfield tie-in but I was expecting something that would be like intriguing and and satisfying and in a genre I like. And that's all I knew going in. And that's all I wanted to know going in. And that's all I really want to know going into any movie. I think even more than the name, J.J. Abrams is kind of the, the central marketing gimmick here because... He's uh, the Beyonce. He, well, <laughs> he's the brand. He's a brand the way that Hitchcock was a brand when, when Psycho came out. And people, like, they didn't know exactly what to expect, but they, they knew what a Hitchcock movie was. The same way we today know what a J.J. Abrams property is. Like, he has the whole mystery box thing, and you know that there is going to be... Well, sort of. I mean, this was his first horror film. And as we said, it, it came out of North by She's Northwest. right about the mystery, the gimmickry, yeah. the mystery box. Right. And and what's interesting to me is like, this is not a J.J. Abrams film. He is a producer and he came on way after it was in who knows what stage of development. I mean, I've read pieces talking about J.J. Abrams and Cloverfield that don't even mention Dan Trachtenberg, which is really kind of unfair. And that is unfair. I yeah. mean, that's that's right up there with How I Trained Your Dragon is a great Pixar movie. Yeah. Like, because <laughs> oh. it's animated and it's good, it's got to be Pixar, right? Yeah. But that's what I'm saying, that J.J. Abrams is kind of the marketing gimmick here. And that because he is associated, you know that you're getting something mysterious and interesting mm-hmm. and unlike your typical blockbuster. Well, it's I, just like Judd Apatow. Like, mm-hmm. eh, He's written some films. He's directed some films. He's produced some films. He's been friends with people who have made some films. They're all just kind of Judd Apatow films. You yeah. know, he's become a brand name. And what, like his exact position on the film doesn't seem to matter to a lot of people. So Alfred Hitchcock Presents all over again, mm-hmm. except, yeah. except for these other people. Speaking of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I, one of the things that fascinates me about, like the marketing for this movie was was gimmicky for, for Psycho. I mean, there was the the record album playing in the lobby saying 10 minutes until Psycho mm-hmm. starts. There were the ads talking about how not even the queen herself, God save her soul, would be will be admitted <laughs> to this movie 10 minutes late. There's that great trailer too oh the the bathroom trailer the one where yeah well the hitchcock walking in through the different locations and saying we, we can we can we can only say so much about what happens here and then sort of leering a little over the bathroom because that was a, a big deal in the movie was showing a bathroom mm-hmm. showing a toilet showing a toilet flushing mm-hmm. they were all gimmicks well they cleaned all this up now big difference you should have seen the blood a hope the whole place was, well, it's, it's too horrible to describe. Dreadful. And I'll tell you, there's a very important clue was found here. Down there. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here. 
very slowly of course the shower was on there was no sound and uh... but one of the things that fascinates me about this movie is he apparently went full Abrams on it. Like he, even behind the scenes, he concealed the final pages of the script from his cast and didn't let them have them until he was ready to shoot. He leaked uh, stories to the press saying that he was considering Helen Hayes for the role of uh, Mrs. Bates. He had a chair on the set with Mrs. Bates' name on it to fuel. So, you know, that uh, during set visits, there would be this mystery about who was playing her. Will she come in and sit in the chair? All of these little things that he did even behind the scenes to kind of further the stories that would get out and the expectations that there was a Norma Bates out there. I mean, it makes me feel like it wasn't just something that he was selling. He he knew what he had here. I took my friend Bryce. Hi, Bryce. I don't know if you're listening. To see this movie when we were both in college, it was playing in, in, in uh, Dayton. They did uh, sort of classic revivals uh, over the summer. And he had somehow, at the age of like 20, 21 or whatever, never been exposed to the twist. <laughs> and we we were sitting in front of an older, a couple of older ladies who had some commentary throughout the, mo- the movie, such as, gas sure was cheap back then. It, the, the nadir being like, it sure was dark back then. But <laughs> at some point... Blacks were blacker. <laughs> Grays were grayer. I know. know. But at some point, one turns to the other and goes, now, isn't he dressing up as his mother? No. Uh, Yeah. But it it does show how how, uh, keeping people in the dark can still be effective. For sure. But most of the time, people get too persnickety about spoilers. (laughs) Which ties into your topic, Scott, which is? The Gear Shift movie. (gasps) Uh, Psycho is the classic example of what P.T. Anderson once dubbed the gear shift movie, a movie that heads in one direction, stops on a dime, and pivots in an entirely different direction. Uh, Psycho is a movie about Marion Crane, shower scene happens, and then it becomes a movie about Norman Bates. Uh, this happens to a lesser extent in 10 Cloverfield Lane, which mimics the first half of Psycho, but keeps the protagonist. But when the gear shift works best, it not only upends the audience's expectations, but introduces a new tone, too. Psycho gets shockingly dark once Marion's moral crisis shifts into a consideration of Norman's headspace. And many great movies do likewise. Audition plays like an Ozu movie until it doesn't. Uh, Something Wild is a bubbly road movie until Ray Liotta shows up. And Anderson's own Boogie Nights marks the change from the 70s to the 80s in shocking fashion. Not all of these gear shifts have to be twists like Psycho, but they have the same effect of discombobulating you mid-movie and making you reconsider the events you've just seen from a completely different perspective. The gear shift, I think, is much rarer than the twist. They're not the same thing, but I'd like to see more of them uh, in movies. There's not enough enough gear shifts. A lot of twists, not enough gear shifts. That's my point. Well, in 10 Cloverfield Lane's gear shift seems to be added on more or less after the fact. Just uh, the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and then it's over. I mean, then, I mean, maybe if there's some continuity between this and whatever the next thing is, then maybe we can almost consider it as as a mid-movie shift if they're they're all part of the same, you know, continuous universe, but we don't know that yet. I mean, I wasn't timing it, but I think her, there was a fairly substantial amount of time spent above ground. I think it's the last 10 minutes or so, which is is not a long movie. 
movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an hour and 45 minutes, I guess. Yeah, but it, it, it definitely is a genre shift. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, when basically once she takes her helmet off. Yeah, which is which is great. I, and I obviously wish there was more movie to kind of consider that, but uh, I think the movie ends properly where it does. But that's something that there is the, there is the talk about the twist, but I do think when you do the the gear shift, which is a, which is a related but different thing, uh, you do end up with a different tone. Um, What's a gear shift that doesn't work? Oh, gear shift from Dust Till Dawn. From Dust Till Dawn, yeah, I think that's fair. Let's have a uh, a quiet, insular, angry, tense hostage drama. Oh wait, now it's a crazy, wacky movie about vampires. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a while. I do. I did kind of like that. I think I like the movie more than most people, but but I don't. But yeah, I. No, I, I mean, I enjoyed it at the time because it's a wackadoo kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it it doesn't age well. Well, he's not. And Robert Rodriguez is just not Quentin Tarantino as a director. He's just not. You know, uh, speaking of Tarantino and gear shift movies, Death Proof. Yep. <laughs> Death Proof Which, is a great is a perfect example. Oh, yeah, it works really well there. Oh yeah. uh, no, no, yeah. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Uh, but it's a weird thing where I enjoyed the, it, the 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 problem I guess with gear shift movies. I enjoy the second half of Death Proof so much more than the first half, and that's a film I've been me- meaning to revisit for a long time because gear shift movies can be really interesting and exciting in that. You, you, you're watching something and suddenly you're watching something different. You have no idea where you are. Your expectations have been upended and that can be a really reviving kind of experience, especially for people like us who see a lot of films and are kind of familiar with like the patterns and the, and the tropes. But at the same time, sometimes with gear shift movie, you're watching a movie that you're enjoying and suddenly <laughs> it's not that movie anymore. Mm-hmm. And even if you enjoy the other part of the movie, there's always sort of that feeling of, what is the story of Marion Crane getting to the other end of that trip and meeting up with Sam? Where will that romance go? How is he going to react to here's $40,000? I mean, I wouldn't give up Psycho, but some part of me does want to see the non-gear shift movie version and what that story is. J.J. Yeah, I mean, Abrams is going to produce it next year. <laughs> that's, I mean, that is the danger because, because I think in, in any case, you're going to be comparing what happens before the shift and what happens after. Mm-hmm. You just want that comparison to be th- not one is better than the other but how do these two things relate and you know death proof for me i think those the two relate in fascinating ways and i i I like to think about that but practically speaking it's very hard to favor a pretty kind of like casual conversational go nowhere kind of hangout piece with this a super exciting car (laughs) you know uh chase movie so uh and also fairly funny which the first half really isn't yeah i mean maybe that's a failure on the film's part but i I like them both but in any case i i do it's a bold choice and uh, I'd like to see it be made more. You almost really just see it from filmmakers who have tremendous confidence. Oh yeah, it's it super, super risky. Mm-hmm. Much like the mystery box is super, super risky. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. both Cloverfield and 10th Cloverfield Lane, I you can hear the, the anger in the theater when these movies end. Like as much as we all loved these movies, there are people that hated both of them. <laughs> I remember, I'm one of the different members that have seen Cloverfield. Is the moment it ended, the moment the credits started, the three people behind us I was sitting with you goes, what the? What's that? Yeah, and uh, I went and saw it again in the theater because I loved it so much, the first Cloverfield. And right behind me, somebody stood up and screamed, that was BS! <laughs> Afterwards, he he didn't use the abbreviation. We're yeah. trying to avoid the explicit tag here. <laughs> and again, you, you get online and just, you know, get on uh, like what your social media of choice, such as Peach, and uh, <laughs> and like look for mentions and you will find so much anger and rage from people who went in with expectations 
expectations and did not have those expectations met and are simply unsatisfied because this movie wasn't what they thought they were getting. I will never understand the mentality of, I want to go into a movie expecting a specific thing. I want the trailer to give away the whole movie. And then I want to see that movie the trailer gave away. And if not, I will be very disappointed and angry. I don't get it. No. I mean, why even go <laughs> if it's just going to give you the thing that, that is exactly what you want? Don't you want to do something different? Uh, people. They shouldn't be allowed to watch movies. Anyway. <laughs> this is why we can't have nice gear shifting things. Uh, yeah. So people should not be allowed to watch movies. Uh, Psycho. If you know, I, I, there are a few people I should say should see Psycho, uh, and for those people, it's widely available on DVD, and Blu-ray. I own it as part of a collection of Hitchcock masterpieces on Universal Blu-ray. It's also available on on-demand services. Uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane is currently in theaters, uh, and we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put something interesting on your radar. Keith, want to kick us off? Yeah, I want to recommend a film called Cretia. It's a first feature film by a writer-director named Trey Edward Schultz. Uh, and I want to tell you about what the film is about and then kind of tell you the backstory around it. I'll be brief. But it is the, the film is about a woman named Cretia, played by an actress named Cretia Fairchild, who is sort of a is an addict and an alcoholic and has been invited to reunite with her family by her sister Robin, played by Robin Fairchild, not an actress, for Thanksgiving after a long absence. And so she kind of floats into this this family festivities and she is not sober when she gets there and less sober as as things go along and it's all filmed in and around a single house and it's kind of a familiar story I Natasha read it for the virgin I think she basically said it's an unfamiliar take on 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 a familiar story and and uh, that cannot be uh closer to the truth because it, it is filmed almost like a horror film in a way and, and it, it is um you're unsettled there's humor in it but you're unsettled from the moment you go into this and it is Obviously, a low-budget film, but it is. You know, Scott was talking about how in Psycho, there's like not an unthought-through setup, and every moment in this film is 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 you know contribute. It's an, it's a fine piece of filmmaking. It, it is a you know sort of a remarkable uh, debut, and and I would highly highly recommend it. It opened in New York. Um, it's rolling out, although I guess the Chicago release was delayed. So I don't know if that's if that's a good indication that's such or good not. Buzz, though. It does, it does, and and the the backstory is remarkable because it is Cretia Fairchild is is the director's aunt. She is a professional actress. There's at least one other professional actor in it. And that's that's Bill Wise, but. Otherwise, it's his family, and they're not actors. And the incident is based on the film is based on two things. One is a cousin of theirs that basically was part of this disastrous uh, disastrous family gathering and and OD'd a few weeks later. And Schultz's own relationship with his father, who also had an estranged relationship and and and, and died. Um, and to know that is gives an you don't have to know that to appreciate this movie, but but to know it adds an extra layer to it. It is you know it's kind of a kind of a brave act to enact this family drama in in a, in a film, in any film, much less one that it is a it's a very strong debut. I would I would, I would highly recommend Cretia. Yeah, I, I'm looking looking forward to it. I think it won the Cassavetes Award at mm-hmm. the Independent which, Spirit Awards, which is which is for films that were made under uh, 500 grand. Appropriate too, because because uh, Cretia Fairchild's performance it, it, it is you know it kind of harkens back to Jenna Rollins and Woman Under the Influence. Cool, uh, Tasha. What about you? Um, three things. 
briefly. Uh, Zarafa, animated French film about a young African boy and a giraffe, reviewed it for The Dissolve uh, back in the day, loved it. It is now streaming for free on Amazon for Amazon oh. Prime members. If you have family, uh, maybe preview it first because huh. there's there's some slightly rough stuff at the beginning, but mostly it's just this very, very beautiful animated film that shows you a bunch of uh, points of view that we don't get to see in American animated film very often. Uh, so Zarafa, uh, now on Amazon Prime. Victoria, if you are familiar with the many, many rants uh, I have, have many rants. <laughs> laid out about Victoria <laughs> in various places or my interview with the director uh, for RogerEbert.com. Huge, huge fan of Victoria. The two and a half hour, roughly, single take uh, heist movie. That is now on Netflix. So it is very, very accessible. It is very easy to watch. I believe it was one of your first Your Next Picture Show recommendations. Uh, it might well have been <laughs> back when it was in theaters. I It was it was on my top 10 for last year. I, I love that film. Uh, third, April in the Extraordinary World uh, is coming to theaters. This is an animated French film. Uh, yet another film from G-Kids, the purveyors of all of the good international a- animation that there is, including these days pretty much everything by Studio Ghibli. This is a very strange... It's adapted from a book by Jacques Tardy, who is a pretty famous French graphic novelist. And it takes place in a sort of steampunk world where all the scientists went missing around the beginning of the 19th century. So the world never actually discovered electricity. Uh, There were never cars. Basically, they never moved on from kind of the steam slash coal age. And everything that happens in this movie falls out from there. It becomes this sort of strange, like alternate reality world and an adventure story where the child of a couple of the disappeared scientists kind of has to make her own way with her immortal talking cat. And if that doesn't interest you enough, I hope that you've seen uh, The the Rabbi's Cat, which is another French animated film about a talking cat released by G-Kids and covering a series of adventures in a wild and complicated world. This is very reminiscent of that in a lot of really good ways. Don't really want to spoil anything about the plot, but it's coming to theaters. It's really beautiful. It's really exciting and intriguing, and I recommend it highly. Scott, what do you have for us? I'll have kind of an idea uh, wrapped in a, wrapped around a movie or an <laughs> idea within a movie. Uh, on assignment recently, I had occasion to revisit David Cronenberg's Eastern Promises, a film I really like about the Russian mob underworld in London. One of the things that occurred to me when watching it is how much Eastern Promises, in Cronenberg's career more generally, makes a sound argument in favor of on-screen violence. <laughs> as, cr- as, as critics and persons of taste, I think we have a tendency to overvalue the things we cannot see. It's classier, more suggestive to leave sex and violence to the imagination. But there are times when emphasizing a physical action is the better route, and Eastern Promises is the perfect example. There are no guns in the film. Uh, people kill each other through cunning and brute strength. Bones are broken, throats are slashed, and in one famous scene, a nude uh, Viggo Mortensen fends off two assassins in a bathhouse, and the violence is reduced to pure animal will. Uh, There's a version, I think, of Eastern Promises that could be made, where the camera drifts away, and we have to imagine the violence, and and, and critics, uh, of course, will reward that by telling us that uh, what we uh, imagine is so much worse than what we could see. But that's not the version that Cronenberg made, and I'm grateful for that. So... That is my little mini rant about hooray for on-screen violence. What do you think, Keith? You're going to tell me it's always preferable. No, I'm not going to tell I, you. I like, I like, I'm not going to tell you it's preferable, but I, but I, I just think uh, uh, films that have it 
uh, and that are super violent and that are showing you uh, are showing the you know, the violence in, in in all of its brutality uh, tend not to get uh, the, the same respect as films that don't. And I and I feel like that's not necessarily uh, fair. All right, I'm, I'm get behind that. That's okay. a, that's a great fight scene in Eastern Promises. How how is it's. I remember being kind of, kind of mostly positive, but not not over the moon for that movie. How, how uh, I loved it. Okay, I think it holds up great. Uh, I, I do think the world needs more graphically naked violence, and that that film is a film that gives it us delivers. some that scene graphically is, that naked scene is, violence. That scene is unreal. Scott Tobias, I have a little film for you. It's uh, coming up in theaters. It's called Jeremy Salnier's Green Room, mm. and you are going to love it. <laughs> Genevieve, I'm looking forward to that. Genevieve, what have you got for us? Well, now for something completely different. Um, (laughs) Gear shift. Yeah, yeah, here's a gear shift for you. Uh, I just want to recommend a little documentary from 2015 that is now available on Netflix Instant. And I think it's also airing as part of PBS's Independent Lens series. It's called A Ballerina's Tale. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. How much graphic violence? (laughs) Uh, Well, if you consider what uh, point shoes do to the human foot, maybe a little bit. But um, for those of you who aren't familiar with this movie, it's uh, about the rise of Misty Copeland, who is the American Ballet Theater's first black principal dancer. She also has some huge endorsement deals. And over the last couple of years, she's become a brand in a way that no ballet dancer outside of maybe Baryshnikov has ever been. Uh, Hers is a truly unique career and story. And Nelson George's documentary captures her rise more or less as it's happening. It also engages with why Copeland is such a historical anomaly, both in terms of her skin tone and her body type, in ways that are fairly critical of ballet's history. Now, I don't want to oversell this movie too much. It's a pretty straightforward documentary. There's not much in the way of visual distinction, Scott. But Yeah, I saw uh, it already. I, yeah, I, I yeah. can back that up. Uh, but, <laughs> but maybe you can also back up uh, this uh, comparison that I... As I was watching this, I kept feeling like I was watching a 30 for 30 on a ballet dancer, yeah. which it was something I did not realize I wanted so much until I was watching it. <laughs> um, so if you would like to see a good ballet documentary, see Ballet 422 mm-hmm. first, but then also watch this because it's just it's a really pleasing little documentary, I think. Totally, yeah. Does I, Ballet 422 give you like a good background that's useful for it? No, Ballet 22 is much more... Uh, um, Technical. It's, about fil- it's a film. It's more of a film. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, like, like more of a pe- feat of... Yeah, yeah. Right. uh, Ballerina's Tale is it's a tale. It's much more of a narrative, and it is following a specific timeline and a specific person's story and someone who is very charismatic, but also very much you know on she's on you know, um, which could be a turnoff for some, but I find Misty Copeland just super fascinating and admirable, and I enjoy watching her for a a nice little dip into her world. Yeah, it'd be actually kind of an interesting double feature those two movies. Yeah, both uh, on Netflix and I think Ballet Four Twenty Two is still on Netflix and Yeah, I really love Ballet Four Twenty Two. Yeah, uh, but that's just uh, the filmmaking that is fantastic. Color me intrigued. And so that's that's it for this week's edition of the Next Picture Show. Uh, our next episodes come out April twelfth and April fourteenth. Tasha. Tell us about our next pairing. Well, we're still a little ways off from summer blockbuster season, which now officially starts on May 1st. But we got a little taste of summer with Jeff Nichols' new film, Midnight Special, which does blockbuster on a budget in ways that we don't want to spoil for people who haven't seen it yet. Nichols is the writer-director of Shotgun Stories, Mud, and Take Shelter, and he became an indie darling for his quiet, contemplative, tense films about relationships and about how they sometimes come with desperate needs and expectations that can't be fulfilled. Midnight Special goes in a 
radically different direction. It keeps Nichols' favorite leading man, Michael Shannon, and it keeps the tense, insular tones of his previous films. But it's a bigger movie than he's done in the past. And he says its major inspirations include the government sci-fi chase movies of the 1980s, like E.T. and Starman, and Steven Spielberg's 1977 science fiction classic, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So naturally, we thought it would be fun to put the inspiration up against the original and watch Midnight Special and Close Encounters of the Third Kind in close proximity with each other. Again, we're not going to spoil you by getting into the specific points of comparison until we actually record the podcast. But let's just say this is one pairing you're really going to want to watch before we get to the episode. Well, I'm excited to see both. I of course, I've seen Close Encounters, but Midnight Special, looking forward to it. Really like uh, Jeff Nichols' other work. And, uh, you know, it's a gear shift. Gear shift. <laughs> I just keep saying it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Psycho, 10 Cloverfield Lane, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show and on our Facebook page, uh, which is facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, where we're posting daily feedback. You can leave a short Voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And if you enjoy good television shows, I am currently reviewing The Americans on Vulture. Tasha, what about you? Uh, you can find my film writing at The Verge. And if you enjoy comic books, you can find a ginormous interview that I just did with Alex Robinson, one of the co-hosts of Star Wars Minute and Alphabetical at thecomicsjournal.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? I'm on Twitter at kphips3000. And I, you can find me at Uprox. Scott, where can we find you? Oh, hi. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, you can find my work on uh, NPR, Variety, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, Vulture, Village Voice, and Musings. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve for producing the show, with assistance from Colin the Animal Griffith. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing the recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Please tune in next time. Children behave. That's what they say when we're together.